Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. President Biden says that he will order the withdrawal of all U.S. combat troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Now, this isn't the first time that Biden has made such a promise. Back in 2012, Biden, as vice president, vowed that all U.S. troops would leave Afghanistan by 2014. In Afghanistan, we've agreed on a gradual drawdown, so we're out of there by the year 20, in the year 2014. My friend and the governor say it's based on conditions, which means it depends. It does not depend for us. But we are leaving. We are leaving in 2014, period. Well, seven years after Biden's last Afghan withdrawal deadline promise, is this Afghan deadline withdrawal promise any different? Well, here's one clue of what it could look like from The New York Times. Quote, Instead of declared troops in Afghanistan, the U.S. will most likely rely on a shadowy combination of clandestine special operations forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives to find and attack the most dangerous al-Qaeda or Islamic State threats. Well, joining me is Scott Horton. He is the director of the Libertarian Institute, the editorial director of Antiwar.com host of The Scott Horton Show, and author of the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Scott Horton, welcome to Pushback. Great to be here with you, my friend. What do you think of this announcement? Do you think Biden will stick to this pledge? Uh, no, I don't. Um, if anyone was sticking to any pledges, it would have been the signature of Donald Trump's representative, Salman Khalilzad, last February uh, 2020 uh, to be out by the beginning of May. And essentially, I've seen um, uh, quite a bit of uh, doves on Twitter and in other places celebrating that. Good. He said, we're getting out by September 11th, so must be. Uh, <laughs> and yet, uh, to me, it looks much more like the Pentagon has won again. They rolled him just the same way they rolled Barack Obama and the same way they rolled Donald Trump into escalating. Obama wanted to escalate, but just by a couple divisions. And they forced him to escalate by 70,000 troops in a massive failed surge, uh, one that Biden opposed at the time, or at least he wanted a much more minimal one and much more narrow in scope at the time. Um, and then Donald Trump famously ordered troops out of Afghanistan in March of 2017 when he first came into office, and they just ignored him. Tillerson and Mattis and the rest of his cabinet, they just said, belay that order. We're not doing that. And by August of 2017, they had pressured Trump into escalating the war by what five to 10,000 men and a massive escalation of the air war there that reigned for the entire four years of Trump's presidency. And uh, now they come in and Biden is breaking this deal and punting till September 11th, which is terrible symbolism there anyway, in terms of politics. All the right wingers are already attacking him and saying this is a hasty and precipitous withdrawal, even another six months extension, hasty, precipitous. And they're going to attack him and say that he's giving into our enemies on the anniversary of 
of uh, their first attack on us. And we're essentially leaving in defeat. And that's why they're so upset, Aaron, is because America lost. The mission was to establish the power of this federal government, this national government in the city of Kabul to rule over the rest of the country. And that has simply failed. And as their warning, well, if we leave, things could get worse there. Well, that's absolutely right. That's because they lost the war more than 10 years ago, lost it again 10 years ago. And it's the same as if we leave in 10 years or another 20 years from now. Ultimately, the people that the Americans have tried to put in power there have not been able to establish their legitimacy among the population of the country, certainly not enough of them to sustain them in power. But I see a potential contradiction here. You're saying, on the one hand, that the Pentagon has won by having Biden announce this withdrawal in September, as opposed to May 1st, which was the agreed upon deadline. But you're also mm -hmm. saying that war hawks are upset. Oh, well, I mean, look, the entire political discussion takes the announcement at face value for what it's worth. But I guess what I'm saying is in September, they're going to punt again. And they're going to say, well, we can't leave now because truthfully, violence will get worse. And they're all saying it. David Petraeus, who himself lost the war 10 years ago, is in defensenews.com right now saying we can't leave because if we leave, everything will be bad and then we'll have to come back. So what's the point of going at all? We have to stay forever. And it's only because he lost the war and no one will say that. But they don't have any generals who won any wars to ask. And so they just asked David Petraeus again. Yeah, talk about Petraeus. His record in overseeing the uh, U.S. NATO force in Afghanistan and his credibility now to warn about the consequences of withdrawal. Yeah, well, so the reason he was able to do the Afghan surge was because they had built up this giant myth of the success of the surge in Iraq. But when they announced the surge in Iraq, they had all these benchmarks, meaning the the symbols of progress on the mission they were trying to accomplish, which was to create enough peace in Baghdad for political reconciliation among the different factions to call an end to the civil war so that they could just use parliamentary politics to resolve all their differences in a democracy from now on. Yeah, well, that didn't work. That surge did not work. All they did was they completed the sectarian cleansing of Baghdad and made it something like an 85 to 90 percent Shiite city now. And deprive those victorious Shiites allied with Iran of any reason left to compromise with the Sunnis. And, and Petraeus had made peace with the Sunni insurgency and gave them money and guns to continue marginalizing the Al-Qaeda guys who they were already sick of and had already turned on. But he had also made them a bunch of promises about how they were going to be integrated into the new Iraqi government, given jobs in the military and given all patronage money to the tribes and everything. None of that ever came true. At the same time, America had fought the whole war for the Iraqi Shiite supermajority, and they won everything. And that whole surge was no success at all, other than in the public relations campaign in the United States. They went from the surge is working, the surge is working, to the surge worked. But never mind those benchmarks. What's a benchmark? There are no benchmarks. Just the surge worked because we said so over and over again, and that's it. And then from, based on that completely tissue paper thin reputation, Petraeus went and said, and he'd been by then promoted to the head of CENTCOM and said, now we have to do the surge again in Afghanistan. Well, whatever, whatever victory they did have in Iraq was in 
establishing firmly, which this had terrible negative consequences. You can call it a victory, but in a in a microcosm, it was a victory that they fought the war for the supermajority population of the country against a 20% minority that lost. The winners then kicked us right out and said, you know, we don't need you. But anyway, in Afghanistan, we're not fighting for the supermajority against a 20% minority. We're fighting for a coalition of minorities that make up about 55 to 60% against the plurality population of the country, the Pashtun tribes of the South and the East, who are something like 40 to 50% of the population. And even though the Americans, you know, did bring some Pashtuns into the government, including Hamid Karzai, uh, the initial uh, sock puppet dictator that they put in power in 2001, his family was from Kandahar and that kind of thing. But that never really meant that the Pashtun population of the country had representation in the government. We're essentially trying to foist a coalition of minorities on the plurality population of the country who have refused to accept it all of this time. In fact, in my book, um, and borrowing heavily from other great writers, um, I show how at first they had the opportunity for peace, but the Americans insisted on fighting and would not accept the surrender, essentially, of the Taliban and their allies. And so they ended up fighting them for 15 years. What was that opportunity? And losing. Scott, so, uh, Scott explain that I'm opportunity sorry. for peace that the U.S. shunned. Sure. Okay, well, so two of the worst of the warlords of uh, the last 20 years have been Gubaldin Hekmatyar and Jalaluddin Haqqani. Well, both of those guys had been CIA favorites in the 1980s. They were the ones whose merciless violence the Taliban had risen to power to marginalize in the Afghan civil war and um, in the 1990s. And uh, they were they were pretty bad guys. And then but the position the Americans were in when they decided to create a new government in Kabul was, well, what do we do with these warlords? Do we let them in or do we keep them on the outside? On one hand, they're war criminals and really bad guys. On the other hand, if you refuse to deal with them at all, you're just pushing them into insurgency. And so, especially with Haqqani, and it's Anand Gopal has done great work on this. It's in his book, No Good Men Among the Living, and also in his articles at tomdispatch.com. And others have written about this as well, but Gopal did the best on this. Where Haqqani tried to surrender in the George W. Bush years, in the early years of the occupation, repeatedly. And in fact, for a time, his brother was even recruited by the CIA to serve in a special death squad, uh, the one of the so-called uh, terrorism pursuit teams. But then they betrayed him. I think the military betrayed him and tortured him in Bagram. And so Haqqani finally went to war. And then his group, the Haqqani Network, ended up allying with the Afghan Taliban and were essentially this whole time, they've been the second most deadly group of insurgents fighting against the Americans and the American-created government in Kabul this whole time. But he was still trying to be friends as late as I think 2005. I'd have to go back now, but for the first, very first few years of the war. And in fact, more importantly than that, Mullah Omar had essentially just given up the field. I mean, they were decimated when the Americans came and carpet bombed their infantry. They were just done. The Northern Alliance were able to rouse them right out of the capital city. And um, Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban at the time, he did not declare the mother of all battles and we will destroy you and we will, the South will rise again. He didn't do that. He simply just went home and spent, you know, he lived until 2013, um, right down the street from an American military base, in fact, 
essentially retired to a life of quiet study and, and not really leading the Taliban or not in any military way. Anyways, he remained sort of their uh, symbolic leader and, and political leader in a sense, I guess, um, but not did not lead the war effort. And in fact, he had signed a letter to all of his cabinet, authorizing them to surrender to the new government and to try to deal with the new government. Again, as I mentioned, Hamid Karzai was a Pashtun and his father had been a prominent leader of the Popolzai tribe down in Kandahar city or in Kandahar province. And so Mullah Omar recognized the new American puppet government as, quote, Islamic and legitimate and that they may not they may not be us, but we can still deal with them. So this was the situation the Americans inherited. In other words, even presuming the regime change in Kabul, which is a big presumption, they still could have essentially dealt with the different warlords and former members of the Taliban, but they simply refused to and, uh, and instead targeted them and fought them and have gotten, nobody knows how many tens of thousands of people killed and certainly must be more than 100,000 people killed in violent conflict in that country in the last 20 years. And now we're leaving one way or the other. If we leave, when we leave, it'll be essentially leaving the country in the same position that we founded it. Right. You know, you mentioned Iraq earlier, so I want to ask you about that. One argument I think we'll hear from those who advocate a indefinite U.S. occupation in Afghanistan is uh, invoking the example of Iraq. And they're going to say that when Obama withdrew from Iraq in 2011, that that according to their argument, led to the rise of ISIS. Mm -hmm. What would you say in mm -hmm. response to that? You know, it's really funny. I think everybody remembers in the Trump campaign of 2016, he said, Obama and Hillary are the founders of ISIS. And the media just howled. How dare he say that? Well, he explained it well a few times. And you're right about the current narrative, but rewind a little bit. He got it right a few times. And, and most importantly, you know where he got it right? In a written speech that he gave at the National Interest Foundation, where he was introduced by Zalman Khalilzad. You might remember that one. And it begins with him saying, look, it's actually really right that Obama and Hillary are the founders of ISIS because they supported Al-Qaeda, Mujahideen fighters in the war in Libya. And then they supported them in the war in Syria. And then they had pulled all of the troops out of Iraq. So when the Islamic State rose up in Syria, our troops were not there to keep them out of Western Iraq. Well, that's just scientifically factual. What else can you say? If the Americans had still been there, they could have kept the blowback from blowing back. Right. And then what happened, of course, though, was he lost Mike Flynn and he lost Stephen Bannon. And after that, he had nothing but hawks around him. And so even by the time that he announced the Afghan surge in August of 2017, he said, we saw what happened in Iraq. Obama pulled the troops out and that led to the rise of ISIS. So he had forgotten step one and two of his syllogism there. Now it was simply the withdrawal that had caused the crisis. And then that becomes, you know, we already had the safe haven myth. And I wrote an article about this for the American Conservative Magazine. And there's quite a few other great articles with the same name because it is just a myth. And that says that we can never leave anywhere where we have troops. We can never pull them out because then Al-Qaeda will fill the power vacuum and come after us. And even if we're talking about Afghanistan, which is as far from America as you could possibly get without being on your way back again, 
still somehow there's a magic portal to Boston Logan Airport and they're going to be able to get us. So we can never leave. And with the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq, that just gave the safe haven myth this huge new lease on life. What a powerful talking point for these hawks when they never have to acknowledge their covert action in supporting the rise of the jihadists, al-Nusra, and then ISIS, the breakoff and the creation of the caliphate uh, in 2011 through 13 and 14 there. And then this is a really important point too, as long as we're at it. At the time, many hawks, especially Israelis like uh, the Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren, were perfectly happy to say they preferred ISIS. Michael Oren said this in an interview with the Jerusalem Post and also uh, at the Aspen Security Conference in an event that he did with the Atlantic's editor, Jeffrey Goldberg, where he said, look, between the Sunni evil and the Shiite evil, we prefer the Sunni evil. And he said this only two weeks after the uh, fall of Mosul and after Baghdadi had given his speech declaring himself the Caliph Ibrahim, ruler of the Islamic State. Um, and and uh, Oren makes explicit reference to 1,700 Iraqi Shiite Air Force cadets that were massacred at Camp Speicher. So he's making it very clear he is not talking about any mythical moderates. He is talking about the ISIS caliphate. And he's saying, we still prefer them because, look, Hezbollah and Assad, they're backed by Iran. And Iran has military nuclear technology. And also Assad is responsible for every single death in the war. So just do the math. Well, both of those things are outright lies, but that was the best that he could come up with, was that Iran is going to give a nuke to Hezbollah to use against poor Israel. What a joke. Yeah. And for the U.S. to argue that it should do something to prevent a safe haven for jihadists is rich, to say the least, given that it was the U.S. role in the dirty war and specifically uh, U.S. anti-tank weapons that allowed al-Qaeda to capture Idlib in Syria and now create what Brett McGurk calls its largest, uh, the largest safe haven for al-Qaeda since 9-11, which actually I want to ask you about later on because you recently did an interesting interview on that topic with a PBS correspondent. But st sticking with Afghanistan for a second, I want to mm -hmm. ask you about the role of the CIA here because Biden okay. is withdrawing what he uh, says are U.S. combat troops, according mm -hmm. to his timeline by September 11th. But I'm still unclear about what the CIA role will be. And I want to read to you a quote from the New York Times, uh, which says this. Instead of declared troops in Afghanistan, the U.S. will most likely rely on a shadowy combination of clandestine special operations forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives to find and attack the most dangerous al-Qaeda or Islamic State threats, current and former U.S. officials said. What do you think that means for the future of the U.S. role in Afghanistan, even after this uh, troop deadline that Biden has set? And talk specifically about the role of the CIA in this war. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're just giving away the whole game there, right? They'll keep JSOC, if not SOCOM, okay? Higher level, top tier special operations forces and CIA will stay in an attempt to, what, prop up the Kabul government? I mean, talk about a fool's errand. You might as well not withdraw at all if the goal is to use American force to prop up that government that cannot stand without American force. 
then they want to sort of fudge the issue and say, well, we've got to go after Al-Qaeda and ISIS forces there. Well, first of all, this is a huge part of the safe haven myth is ISIS in Afghanistan, ISIS-K for ISIS-Khorazan, which is an ancient northeastern province of the old Persian empire that stretches to what's right around now, the Afghan-Pakistan border. Um, and they say, oh no, ISIS-Khorazan, they're international terrorists. They have the name ISIS, safe haven myth invoked. But uh, as I explain in the book, these guys are nothing but old members of the Pakistani Taliban, the Tariqi Taliban, who fled the Obama-Pakistani war against them in 2009 and 2010. And they fled to Afghanistan, to the Afghan side of the line for safe haven. And it was the CIA and the Afghan intelligence services who originally supported them to use them against the Afghan Taliban and to use them against the Pakistanis. Oh, yeah, you keep the Afghan Taliban and give them safe haven on your side of the line. Well, we'll give the Pakistani Taliban safe haven on our side of the line. How do you like that? And so it was the CIA and, well, I should say presumably the CIA because it was the Afghan intelligence services, which, of course, are run by the CIA um, that did all that. And then it was only later that they hoisted the black flag and decided to, to declare their loyalty to the Islamic State. But they're still nothing but local Pashtun Mujahideen, right? These are not international, you know, Zawahiriite, uh, Bin Ladenite terrorists coming for us in any real way. They just make for a good talking point. And notably, six months ago, uh, last October, the Washington Post ran a piece about how JSOC is actually flying, as, as they themselves put it, the Delta Force says, we are flying as the Taliban's Air Force in their fight against ISIS-K. And essentially, we're just flying drones as air cover for them in, and, and uh, infantry support for them in their battles on the ground, which that, you know, adds, adds up to a major wrinkle in the plan to break the deal with these guys who we've been, uh, you know, fighting with for the past little while here. Um, but then, you know, just in terms of the role of the CIA, the whole problem started with the CIA backing the Mujahideen back in the 1980s. And, you know, of course, uh, the Clinton government supported the rise of the Taliban, um, along with the Saudis and Pakistanis, which included CIA help for them then. And the CIA, even as al-Qaeda was attacking us all through the 1990s, Bill Clinton, and through the CIA especially, was backing their side in Bosnia, in Kosovo, and in Chechnya. Uh, and there's a great piece about this by Colleen Rowley, and you can also read about it in the Stratfor leak at wikileaks.org about how, and they emphasize the Saudi role, but come on, this is the Clinton government working with the Saudis. At the same time, they were backing the rise of Vladimir Putin to fight the war against the terrorists in Chechnya under the Yeltsin administration. They were also backing the terrorist side of the war as well. Um, and then, of course, ever since 2001 uh, and the invasion, they led the invasion at first. And I'll give them credit. It sure seems to me like the CIA on the ground, along with their Delta Force friends, were trying to kill bin Laden. It was Bush and Rumsfeld and Tommy Franks who refused to allow them the reinforces that they needed to get bin Laden. I don't think that was a CIA plot to let him go. I think that came from higher up. I think the CIA wanted to get him good at that time. Um, and why do you, then, so you're, you're referring to when they basically let bin Laden escape at Tora Bora, right? Right. And what is your theory on why they did that? Well, I think it's very clear if you just read 
uh, Bush at War by Bob Woodward, much of the quotation uh, that he uses in there comes straight out of the notes from the National Security Council meetings of the Principals Committee. So it's George Bush's note takers that he's just quoting at length where they don't outright use the language, let's let him go. But they make it very clear that this war on terrorism is not a war on Al-Qaeda. And, and if the American people, they're really worried that the American people will get the wrong idea that if we kill bin Laden and destroy Al-Qaeda, that that I mean that we won the war. Mm. And then if we won the war, then we can't have more wars. We and can't Rumsfeld Iraq. especially, that's right. Rumsfeld said, maybe we should start bombing Baghdad right now just for the American people to understand how broad this war ultimately will be. And then I think it's, I'll tell you what, when you read uh, Jawbreaker by Gary Bernson, the second CIA commander on the scene there, uh, and who was pulled out in the middle of the battle, and if you read Kill Bin Laden by uh, Thomas Greer, uh, was his real name, a.k.a. Dalton Fury, who was the Delta Force commander, on the scene there. They both say in their books over and over again, we just couldn't understand why they wouldn't give us the reinforcements we required. And they just say it over and over again. When Delta Team B got there, they pulled Team A out. And they said, why are you doing that? They said, oh, it's a psyop. We want Bin Laden to think we're giving up and leaving already. Well, yeah, but we could use the other half of our guys, please. You know, and then they had Green Berets and Rangers, they had, they had a Green Berets up in the north fighting the Taliban. They had Rangers at Bagram Air Base and down in Kandahar. And James Mattis, General James Mattis, had 4,000 marching Marines, all of which wanted to go and back up the guys fighting at Tora Bora and seal the border. And they were all denied permission to do so. So it is a circumstantial case. Oh, and in fact, I should add to here. They wouldn't let them chase them into Pakistan. They acted like getting to Pakistan was like jumping into hyperspace, and now you can never catch them again. But this was a country that was completely cooperative at the time. And CIA officer Robert Grenier, in his book, 88 Days to Kandahar, explains that he was the station chief in Islamabad. And he explains that he had already coordinated with the Pakistani army and the Frontier Corps that when the Americans chase al-Qaeda across the border, we want to have all our deconfliction to make sure there's no friendly fire. So they were ready to go. And yet they were forbidden from crossing the border into Pakistan to chase them. And they were forbidden from their plan of having another team or themselves traveling by helicopter and then come across the mountains from the uh, east toward the west and and uh, trap them that way. They were all denied. And as Greer says, we're talking Delta. This is the very, very top tier special operations forces. And, you know, strategy is one thing. But when it comes to tactics, when they have a mission and their commander says, we would like this or that asset, or we would like permission to do this or that thing, they are always told yes, always, always. And here they were told no, 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 no. When they have the man himself on the run, we know now, especially that Bin Laden and Zawahiri both were cornered in one square mile at Tora Bora. Instead, Bush made our top-tier special operations forces rely on local Mujahideen warlords. I mentioned Hekmatyar earlier. He's now come in from the cold after uh, leading Hizbi Islami and killing thousands of Afghans and, and certainly hundreds of Americans over the years. But he later laughed 
that he took the CIA's money and then helped bin Laden escape anyway. So this and they did it because for those who have read 1984, it's it was convenient to have Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy, the the sabotager, the, the betrayer out there and and. To get real simple with it, who cares if Osama bin Laden was friends with Saddam Hussein if Osama bin Laden was already dead? If the American people thought that we won the war, didn't we? I thought we won. Why are we still fighting? So they had to leave. They had to let him go, really, Aaron, in order to accomplish the rest of their agenda. Which makes the Iraq war even more cynical. And it also makes Cy Hirsch's reporting about bin Laden living in Pakistan and that basically being an open secret. Uh, he's being he's living there essentially under Saudi protection that mm-hmm. what you're saying here helps explain that because they needed to keep him actually around to justify all the other wars that they wanted to fight, including Iraq. And once that no longer, I suppose, became useful, then then that then finally then it became OK to go then and kill him. Mm-hmm. And it's been 11 or it's been 10 years now. So people might forget, but especially if you go back 15, 16, 17 years. The level of fear that they kept up based on the idea bin Laden is still out there, he could still come and get us, was very important to the dawn of the terror war. Hmm. And, and, to, and to the idea, as Bush put it, that these evil forces exist in 60 countries around the world. And we might be starting now, but there's no telling where we might end up with this. As Petraeus and Cheney and all these people say, we face generations of war. As long as there's a Sunni or help, a Shiite with a rifle anywhere um, who are, you know, fighting in some sort of militant movement against a government we like, we're going to call that bin Ladenite terrorism and we're going to either back them or we're going to fight them. And from now on, until your grandchildren are old men and women. So I want to ask you about what happens to Kabul. Um, If the U.S. leaves, it's leaving behind an Afghan military that according to all measures, is in a disastrous state. I want to quote you from John Sopko, the inspector general for so-called reconstruction in Afghanistan, the U.S. inspector general. He told this to Congress in 2020. The Afghan military, and particularly the Afghan police, has been a hopeless nightmare and a disaster. So right now, the Afghan government controls Kabul. What happens to Kabul after the U.S. leaves? I really don't know. I mean, in fact, even before we get to Kabul, what about all of the provincial capitals where the Taliban essentially stay out? I think that it's very likely that they will just take them. Lashkar Gah and Helmand and, you know, Kandahar City is already to some degrees under Taliban control. I don't know. Um, but in, in um, Nangarhar and all the eastern and southern provinces expect the provincial capitals to be taken over almost immediately. The reason they don't do that now is because they don't want to have... they. They're essentially staying a loose uh, guerrilla type movement. A shadow government operates its courts mostly at night and and doesn't doesn't concentrate its infantry on bases where one good JDAM can take them out, you know. But if the Americans are gone, then yes, they're going to seize all those provincial capitals. There's no reason left for them not to, I don't think, at that point. And then as far as what happens to Kabul, I really don't know. it's easy to fear the worst and, and predict the worst. Um, in my book, Fool's Errand about Afghanistan, um, you know, I don't, I don't try to spin it like, oh, everything will be fine if we leave or anything like that. The Taliban, frankly, are horrible men. And 
are perfectly happy to commit atrocities against civilians when it serves their purposes and so forth. And uh, I don't expect anything, you know, moral from them. I guess it's fair to say that they can be reasonable when it comes to their dealings with others, but they can be absolutely ruthless too. Um, when they came into power in 1996, they were welcomed by the population of Kabul because Masood, who had been a double agent, he was backed by America, but had been really serving the KGB all along, and his forces ruled in uh, Kabul, and it was just an absolute nightmare there. And when the Taliban came, they were actually welcomed, at least for a time, uh, because as mean as they were, they brought law and order and stability. I doubt that things are that bad in, capital, in, in Kabul now, because the Americans, of course, have been able to funnel so much money in that at least some portion of the population is living a comfortable life there in a way that was not the case then. So they probably won't be able to just stroll right in. But then again, the, you know, the Afghan police, as you say there, um, and the Afghan National Security Forces, their army, their entire, you know, Afghan National Army is essentially useless. Without the Americans there to arm it and lead it and have superior air power at all times, um, performing backup and all of these things, essentially all bets are off, right? Now, if they were smart, you know, my idea is that they are already absolutely dominant, the Taliban, in the entire south and east of the country and a little bit uh, up near Kunduz, where there's also a large Pashtun population up in the north there. And so, like, hey, what about, you know, strong federalism? Let's draw with pencil light lines of autonomy and let the Taliban rule Pashtunistan. And Kabul is essentially north of there. Kabul is mostly dominated by the other ethnic factions and as is most of the rest of the north of the country. And it's it's complicated, you know, in the middle and out west and whatever. But it seems like that to me would make the most sense. And yet I hear Afghans all the time saying, no, if you guys would just get out, we will figure it out. And we will negotiate. We will make peace. After all, as I mentioned there, they they made peace with uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who is you know notorious for skinning his victims alive. Who was one of the worst warlords. That's why the uh, Carter and Reagan government backed him in the 1980s. And his group, Hizbi Islam, he was a terrible Islamist, um, you know, ally of the Afghan Taliban in this war. But then in 2016, the Kabul government said nah, and brought him in from the cold and made a peace deal, let his men out of jail, gave him a villa. And he's not fighting. He, he, has, he has essentially been tamed, seemingly. Uh, and so, you know, I got to say, Aaron, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen. I'm not going to sit here and be Pollyanna and tell you if only America leaves, everything will be fine. But I do think that only if America leaves will we know the answer to how these people are going to be able to order their society in a stable and sustainable way for the future um, without the 800-pound gorilla, the Americans, putting their thumb on the scale and distorting every relationship in the country. And to be clear on what your position is, what I hear you saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if the U.S. was really serious about a withdrawal, it would be doing so by the May 1st deadline, which was agreed upon with the Taliban. And by delaying until September, you think the U.S. is opening the door to finding an excuse to stay? What do you think is the difference between leaving in May at the agreed deadline and Biden's deadline of September? Well, 
I mean, first of all, it's been more than a year since an American GI was killed over there. And we're taking now a great risk that the Taliban are going to go back to war against the Americans. Now, you know, they, from time to time, they have demonstrated a, a real craftiness in diplomacy. Um, you know, they might make the judgment call that let's hold off and not attack the Americans, but let's just increase the pressure on the government in Kabul. They may get mad and they may start fighting Americans again, especially if they blow the deadline in September, which I think that they will. I think, it, look, if we had a, a deal in writing and that doesn't hold, then why should just Biden's promise to us that he's going to leave in September hold? Um, I just don't think it will. And essentially, the, Talib, the um, American military, the Pentagon, they want to keep that Kabul airbase no matter what. And just like Americans, uh, the Americans' war on terrorism in Africa, and even in the Persian Gulf, you hear from time to time, or you know, in the Arabian area, uh, Mesopotamia and around there, you hear from time to time, this is really still all about the Cold War with Russia and China. And how can we have a Bagram Air Base there and leave it and give it up when we might be able to use that to someday block the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, or, you know, in, in Africa, you hear them talk all the time about essentially being able to keep oil resources out of the hands of the Chinese in the event of a war with them. So this is all in a way it's, you know, major power conflicts being fought at a very low boil at the expense of people who have nothing to do with it at all. Scott Horton is the director of the Libertarian Institute, the editorial director of antiwar.com. He hosts a great podcast called The Scott Horton Show, and his latest book is Enough Already: Time to End the War on Terrorism. Scott, thanks very much. Thank you, Aaron.